Well, good morning. It's very good uh, for me to see you all again after a few weeks. And I just want to start out by saying, let's open our Bibles to Romans and get back to work, okay? Um, We are continuing our study in this ancient and yet always relevant, grace-saturated, life-changing, life-giving letter that Paul wrote to the Roman believers. And this is the Apostle Paul's masterpiece, really, on how God saves rebellious sinners like you and like me. And what we have been seeing over these last few months so far is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we are united to Jesus. We are forgiven all our sin. Anybody want to say amen? Amen. We are counted righteous in God's sight, not because of anything we have done, but only because of what Christ has done so that we who only deserve God's judgment, right? God's wrath on our sins can receive God's mercy and be made God's children and belong to God's family and can be united to the divine life of the Trinity, Christ in us, us in Christ, and therefore people who daily receive, right, every single day, his mercies are new every morning, right? Every single day we receive God's promises and God's goodness and God's love and God's joy and God's peace. Today, tomorrow, forevermore. And this is staggering news. There is no news like this news, which is why it's called the gospel, the good news. And when we grasp this gospel, it transforms everything, how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see those people who don't know God yet, how we see reality. It transforms where we look for life and meaning and purpose and satisfaction and joy and everything else. It's good news. And that's what we're studying. And today we come to the second half of Romans 7, verses 13 to 25. And it is, if you don't know it already, let me clue you in on it. It is one of the most controversial, most difficult passages in all the Bible. But I believe that we're gonna find that when we are willing to work and to think and to pray our way through it, it is also one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible. So let's, with that in mind, read it together, listen Hear now to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, beginning in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh." For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And all God's people say, amen, amen, the word of the Lord. Now, this passage, Romans 7, is really about a struggle, and it is a struggle that all Christ followers face, and that struggle is real. So I'm calling this message, The Struggle is Real. And if you are kind of culturally aware, you probably know that that phrase has become kind of a meme that ironically is saying the struggle isn't real. It's kind of like saying first world problems, right? But what Paul is talking about here, this struggle, it is truly real. What Paul is talking about is the struggle that, that some of us have wondered about even this week. I mean, you have maybe asked yourself a question like this sometime during this week. If I'm truly united with Christ and if, if Jesus' resurrection power is living in me, why do I still struggle so much with all the same temptations? Why don't I love God more? Why don't I love people more? Why do I so often, I don't really want to read the Bible. I don't really want to pray Paul in this chapter is very transparent and I think you'll find his honesty to be very encouraging. I recently read a classic 19th century book by Robert Louis Stevenson. Probably most of us have heard about it, but we probably haven't read it. It's called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if you know the story, a lot of us have used the phrase, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. We kind of know the idea behind the story. We don't really know the story. Um, the story tells us that Dr. Jekyll is this outwardly good man who struggles because he sees in himself both good and both bad. And too often he feels like the bad outweighs the good. He, he calls himself a, quote, incongruous compound of good and bad mixed together. And he uses that phrase because he's a chemist. And because he's a chemist, he makes this potion and this potion separates the good and the bad so that the, the good in him comes out by day, but the bad uh, comes out only at night. So it's Dr. Jekyll is the good and Mr. Hyde is the bad. And probably a lot of us thought Dr. Jekyll, because that sounds kind of bad, right? We thought that was the bad guy. Actually, Mr. Hyde is the bad guy and his his two parts, his two selves, they live separately and neither one of them restrains the other. But the problem is that Dr. Jekyll's evil side was far more evil than he'd ever imagined. Mr. Hyde was always self-centered and angry and hate-filled. He even murders people. And Dr. Jekyll said, I was tenfold more wicked than I ever thought. Robert Louis Stevenson uh, speaking through Dr. Jekyll explains, I discovered through this process that man is not truly one, but two. He, he says, it wasn't that I was a hypocrite. Both sides of me were completely sincere. Does that resonate with you in any way? 
You know, sometimes we, we can feel like an incongruous compound of these completely opposite people. Part of me wants to do the right thing. And another part doesn't want to do it at all. Paul, if you'll remember, is in the middle of answering questions that were most likely being asked by Jewish believers in the Roman church because it seemed to them that Paul was denigrating and diminishing God's law by his emphasis on God's grace. And Paul responds by saying, no, you misunderstand the reason why God gave the law. He said the law is good, but the law does not and cannot save. He's been talking to us several times so far about how the purpose of God's law is to expose sin. It's like a mirror that shows us how far short we fall of God's holiness. And also the law's purpose is to condemn sin like a judge to show us what we truly deserve for our disobedience. And you might even ask the question, then why would God give his people a law like this, a law that just exposes sin, a law that just condemns sin? Here's why so that we would come to see the sinfulness of our sin. That's what we saw last week, if you look back a few verses, so that we would come to see the justice, the rightness of God's judgment, so that we would run to Jesus as our all-satisfying Savior. See, when we do that, as we saw last week in the first half of Romans 7, we become dead to the law. That's verse 4. When we do that, we no longer serve God by the old way of the written code. That's verse 6. And as, as Pastor Chris showed us last week, the law, it actually ultimately has this good purpose, which is to reveal our sin. That's actually a good thing. And it shows us that our only hope is union with Christ. And we concluded last week in verse 12 where Paul said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And that's where Paul starts in verse 13 when he asks the question, did that which is good then bring death to me? It's an appropriate question, important question. And Paul emphatically answers, by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now there's an important question that's kind of floating out here already for some of you because you know about the controversy and I think we should address it before we, we go farther so that you have perspective. And the question is, who is Paul describing here in these verses that we've just read? Now, I said this is one of the most controversial, one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And, and here's what the debate actually is. Is Paul describing in these verses himself before or after he was a Christian? Is he describing like a, a pre-Christian person or someone who has this experience as a Christian? And, and I will say to you, there are some strong arguments. There are some good theologians on both sides of this debate. Uh, those who, who think that Paul is describing his experience before he became a Christ follower, they say that when Paul says in verse 14 that he is of the flesh, that he is sold under sin. Did you see that? When he says in verse 23 that he's, he's uh, uh, making me captive to the law of sin, that seems to contradict, right? What we, what we learned in Romans 6 about how we've been set free from sin. Now, there are some other reasons that certain people land at this place, but, but I actually believe the 
arguments for understanding Paul to be describing the struggle he had as a Christian are more compelling. Let me just give you several things that you can write down if you'd like to. The first one is just, just the words that he uses in this, this chapter, this section. There are over 20 present tense verbs and they just naturally seem to be describing what is happening now, present tense, a Christian's present experience. So Paul most naturally, I think you read this, would seem to be describing his life in the moment that he's writing. Second, there's a key phrase in verse 22 where Paul says, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. And honestly, no non-believer says that. You're dead in sin. You would never think that. So a desire that Paul says he has to obey God would seem to speak of someone who has been regenerated by the Spirit. In the same vein, number three, in verses 24 and 25, Paul is asking, who will deliver me from this body of death? And again, that's not a question an unbeliever would ask. And then if you kind of broaden out the, the lens to a wide angle kind of panorama view, if you think about the scriptures, the New Testament fourth consistently teaches that sanctification is a process and it's this process of progress, but not perfection. So it should be surprising that sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. Anybody want to say amen? amen? I mean, that's just kind of what we experience in our lives. And that's actually the fifth and final thing I'll mention. Most Christ followers read these verses and they just see their lives in it, right? Didn't you feel that when you were hearing them read a few moments ago? They say, yeah, that's me sometimes. That's how my life feels. And so I think this is the most natural way to read Paul's words in Romans 7, that he's talking about his own experience as a follower of Christ. Now, verse 14 and he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And so let me speak to that. When Paul, I think, says here, sold under sin, I think he is describing a temporary experience at times of what Paul is telling us in his writings not to let happen, but it happens sometimes. Galatians 5.1 is a good example. You can look this up and talk about it in your life group. It, it says, Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So sometimes, right? Anybody wanna make a confession? Sometimes we submit again to a yoke of slavery even when we know Jesus, right? Sometimes we do that. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so he's, he is in this passage, he's comparing in broad terms the nature of God's law and he's contrasting it with the nature of the flesh. He says here in verse 14, that the law is spiritual. That means it's of spiritual origin, divine origin. He says his flesh is naturally sold under sin. And so what he's really talking about in the rest of this passage is that he has, even as a follower of Christ, this flesh, sinful nature, some translations render it, as a Christian, it's still there. There's still this other self, this other kind of person. And I think, you know, words are important, even the small words. And you'll notice in verse 14, he doesn't say I'm in the flesh, like he says, I'm in Christ. He says, I'm of the flesh because we're no longer in the flesh. Maybe you could think of it like this. Like if you come out of a difficult family of origin, 
and you give your life to Jesus, it changes your life. It changes your legacy. It changes your hope and your joy. It changes your peace. And even if, though, you're no longer in that family, you are still of that family, right? And so sometimes those influences, for better or for worse, even though they're weakened and diminished, they can still linger in our lives. We still experience the effects of them. Same thing is true of our flesh. We belong to Jesus, and so we are not ruled anymore by the flesh's enslaving power, but remnants of the flesh still hanging around, right? They still linger. And so that's what Paul is saying. And maybe you can think of it like this. In Jesus, we have new identities, but not perfected capacities. New identities, but not perfected capacities. We remain somewhat impaired uh, in this life, this world, because of our fleshliness. And this is a painful reality. I mean, our, our bodily condition is not caught up with the reality of who we truly are in God's sight in Jesus. The power of the sin nature has been weakened. We've been set free ultimately from it in Christ, but there is that remnant of its indwelling power that still remains and it will remain. It will be with us until the day we die and we are glorified in Christ's presence. And so if you are a Christ follower and if you've ever wondered, and every one of us has, what is going on inside of me? Why am I struggling like this? That's what Paul's talking about here. And we've all experienced it. And what I think, I hope you will see as we get into this is particularly encouraging is the apostle Paul has the same struggle you have. Does that help anybody? The apostle Paul has the same struggle that we have. And he is describing for us these realities in our life. And he is addressing those Jewish believers and saying, it's not the law's fault, it's the flesh's fault. And so with all of this in mind, let's, let's look at four insights about our lifelong struggle, this struggle that is real. Here's the first one. If you're writing stuff down, all Christ followers face a lifelong struggle against sin. And this is the insight Paul sets out in verses 15 to 17. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And so these fleshly desires, they lead us away from God. And, and yet deeper down, even when that happens, underneath those fleshly desires are deeper, more powerful, more real spirit-inspired desires, created desires for God. And so even when we give in to sin, though our flesh is pleased, the spirit is grieved. And that's what Paul is talking about. We, we, we do these things and we, we want to on the one hand, but we hate them most deeply. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, in other words, what I want most deeply, I agree with the law that it is good. And so we, we experience this. God's law reveals what is good and right and just. And then when we sin, we experience the dark side of sin. We give in to sin. And even in those moments we give in to sin, it causes us to realize how good God and God's ways actually are. I mean, haven't you noticed this? After we sin, we find ourselves sometimes thinking, I thought that sin, that sin would bring me joy and satisfaction, but it didn't. It didn't. It, it, it didn't. That momentary pleasure only brings lasting regret. And when 
we see that it causes us to look at God's law and say God's law is good. God is right. His ways are good and true. That's what Paul is describing. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. By the way, let's be clear. Paul is not excusing himself here. You can't do something wrong and say, ah, it's just not me. It's the sin, you know. That's not what Paul's doing because there is a sense in which it is Paul who did it. He's not one person, but two, but he's, he's using this language to highlight the nature of of this indwelling sin and this sin's corrupting influence uh, even in Christ's followers. Maybe you can think of it like this. Sin operates on the inside kind of like a, a computer virus and it just affects every part of our being. If you keep going through the passage, look at the way he speaks of sin's dwelling, indwelling nature. Verse 17, he says, sin dwells within me. Verse 20, sin that dwells within me. Verse 23, sin dwells in my members. And so this sinful nature, this flesh is on the inside and it keeps us from loving God and loving his ways. And so Paul's point is the problem is inside, not outside, not with the law. And this is precisely, isn't it? What we experience every time we say, well, I want to walk in Jesus' ways. I believe his ways are best. I want his paths of flourishing in life. I want to walk in line with the grain of the universe God's created. I want to experience the peace and assurance and joy that comes from knowing God and loving God and belonging to God. And so why in the world am I still tempted to lie? Don't raise your hand, but anybody lie this week? Why, we ask ourselves, am I still tempted to unbelief and anger and self-pity and immorality? Why does this critical spirit still hang on to me? Why am I still so concerned about how I look compared to other people? Why am I still so drawn to worldly, physical things that I know are only gonna rust and rot and be stolen? Why do I find it so hard sometimes to love God? See, on the deepest level, when you're asking that question, it's because you know, I don't really want those things, but I still want them. And it's this tension, it's this struggle. That's the dynamic Paul is talking about. And it doesn't mean we don't ever change. It doesn't mean we don't grow, mature, and experience victory in many of these areas. We can, and, and actually Paul's gonna get into that in chapter eight, that starts next week. But Paul here is just drilling down on this reality, this lifelong struggle we have against sin. And he's, he's showing us our primary problem is inside, our flesh, not outside. Our primary problem is us, not someone, something else. Second insight, Paul is telling us that in ourselves, we cannot win this struggle. Say we cannot win. And we can't win, not in ourselves. It's the flesh. The flesh makes us unable to do what is right. Look at verses 18 and 20. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And he qualifies what he's saying here. That is in my flesh. So he's not speaking absolutely. He's qualifying what he said within my flesh. So he's saying what he's going to say 
In chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, that is in his flesh, he's hostile to God. In his flesh, he does not submit to God. In his flesh, he cannot please God. You can read those words, turn the page, you know, in Romans. There's nothing redeeming about the flesh. The flesh is this enemy on the inside. And Paul goes on to say, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. If you mark your Bible, you ought to underline not the ability to carry it out. Paul is just saying he wants to do good, but he knows in himself with his own resources, he can't, can't do the good he wants. And now he's not yet talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and that's on purpose because he's gonna get to that next, come back next week, okay? That's, that's the preview of not coming at the end of the sermon, in the middle of the sermon, but that's a preview of coming attractions. You know, he's gonna talk about that, but now, right now in Romans 7, he wants us to feel the weight of our natural inability to please God or earn favor from God. He's just driving home. The flesh creates this, you might call it radical systemic impairment, this disability that results in an inability to do what we ought to do. It's a radical spiritual disability. Our, our flesh is spiritually incapacitated, powerless, which is really what that word inability means. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's this war within verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And again, he's not, he's not excusing himself. He's just highlighting the latent power of indwelling sin, our spiritual inability. And so the question is, why, why is he doing that? Why highlight our, our, our natural inability? And the answer is, until we understand this reality, we will always and forever be looking for a remedy in the wrong places. Until we realize that we are naturally unable to make ourselves right with God, we will continue in our pride and self-righteousness. I can do this. I'm gonna just try harder. I will be better. I will work more. But trying, have you seen this? Trying to work our way back to God on internal resources. It's like driving around a cul-de-sac again and again, hoping some way you're gonna get out of the cul-de-sac. It just never happens. And so Paul in love here is just helping us see that left to ourselves with our own internal resources, we are all lost and exposed to the wrath of the justly offended God and we can do nothing to escape that. He wants us to feel that weight, that desperation because it's real and it's true and we will never look for a savior from our sin unless we feel this weight. And do you see friends, do you see this is so counter to our world. Our world tells us we've got it, right? You've got this. I'm not saying you should never say that to somebody. I will say you should never say that to somebody spiritually about spiritual things. Our world tells us you have all you need in you. And so many of us, we kind of believe that. So many of us, sometimes that, that kind of bleeds into our spiritual life. We just think, I can do this. I can handle this. If I just follow my own heart, if I just do what I feel like I should do. And yet Paul is saying, no. 
that never works, that always fails. It will only lead to frustration. You know, Paul is telling us we don't have the answers in this ourselves. We, we, we cannot win in ourselves. That leads to number three, to win this struggle, we need outside help. Say, I need outside help. We need outside help. He says in verse 21, so I find it to be a law. And here by the word law, he means a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And again, he's, he's here talking about his most true self in Christ, his innermost self, which God has regenerated by the work of the spirit so that he now has these new heart affections for God. New American Standard here says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. And he's, he's saying, I, I'm not opposed to the law. I am joyfully and fully in agreement with it in the deepest part of my being. But in verse 23, he then says, but I see in my members, and that's kind of the rest of us outside of our most true self in Christ, our flesh. I see another law, another principle. And this law, this principle is waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So here's the conflict. The affections of the heart versus the appetites of the flesh, the desires of indwelling sin versus the desires to please God. And we have both of those in us, don't we? Notice this language of want and desire throughout this passage. Verse 18, I desire to do what is right. Verse 19, the good I want. Verse 21, I want to do right. And we're going to see in chapter 8 that the spirit indeed does create new desires for God, but the flesh has its own desires and appetites. And, and this is so crucial to understand the nature of this conflict. You know, we, we learned in you know, Romans 6 that the, that the flesh, the old self, doesn't have power over sin, does not have dominion over us anymore. And, and, uh, and, and we're going to see that in Romans 8, the Spirit creates these new desires. And if you understand these things together, you'll see that the flesh cannot coerce us or compel us. The flesh can never make you, force you to do anything. The flesh can entice you. The flesh can seduce you. The flesh does lure you on the level of desires. And that's where this battle internally is created. You know, I, I've said this before, you know, you've experienced this life. Uh, when you think about it, it doesn't really become complicated until you meet Christ. It's a lot simpler in many regards before you meet Christ. You know, what he's describing here is not a description of a non-Christian life. And what I mean by this is this, before we're born again, we only have the flesh to follow, right? Just one master. And so we gladly submit to those fleshly desires. Those are the only desires that we experience. It's all that we know. You know, we hear in our hearts, you should rely on yourself. Okay. We hear, you should just do what you want. Okay. Follow your heart. Okay. You know, the problem is out there. It's not you. Okay. 
You deserve that, so steal it. You should cohabitate with her or sleep with him, so do it. You get angry at him. You deserve to be angry. Cut that corner. Get what you want. Reject God. You get to define your reality. Okay. That's all you know. But once the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us new life, he takes out our hearts of stone. He gives us new hearts of flesh. We receive these new desires and life gets complicated. See, our deepest internal spiritual desires for God are in conflict with our fleshly corrupted desires for sin. So Paul concludes, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And wretched means distressed or miserable. Now, here's how some of us read that sentence, okay? Because we are so baptized in a therapeutic culture. Oh no, you should never call yourself wretched. Why is Paul doing this? He must be having some really real struggles with self-esteem right here. Paul needs to work on his self-image. I want to tell you, if that's how you think, you're not thinking biblically, okay? The Bible does not think like this. Paul is not wallowing in guilt here. Paul is not preoccupied with his failure here. This is not low self-esteem. This is called reality. And some of us sometimes need a good dose of reality, right? He's just being realistic about the condition he's in due to his lingering fleshliness. And this is not the only thing he says about himself, all right? I'm not telling you to go home and look in the mirror and say I'm wretched 25 times every day. You know, that's not what he's saying here. And I think if Paul says this, we could conclude he's an apostle, we're not. So it's only wise for us to come to the same conclusion that he does because it is only when we do see this truth that we can get the help we really need. It's only when we see our wretchedness. It's only when we see our fleshliness that is still on the inside. It is only when we see those things that we can truly sing. Are you ready? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Some of you sing that song and you don't mean it. I'm not really a wretch. At least not like the Raider fans are wretches. (laughs) Right? You got somebody else in your life and I'm better than they are. I'm not really a wretch. Well, you can't really sing that song. You need to be like Paul. Paul goes on to ask a real natural question here. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this conflict I find myself in, this internal war? How is he going to be rescued from this fleshliness, this remnants of indwelling sin? And Paul is just saying, we can't do it. We cannot rescue ourselves, so who will deliver us? Who will save us and rescue us and redeem us from this body of death? And that leads us to the fourth insight, which is this. Knowing we have ultimate victory changes how we face our struggle. And Paul's the answer to Paul's question is Jesus is going to do it. We have ultimate victory in Jesus. We have only one hope, friends, and his name is Jesus. And what I hope you're seeing throughout this is that the more we understand the darkness of our human predicament in and of ourselves, the more clearly we can see the bright sun shining of the light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can save us and bring us victory. 
And Paul is just saying, you know, we know that Jesus wins. And he's been telling us back in chapter six, we're united to Jesus. So that means, remember, we talked about this. That means we win too. We have victory. We're, we're going to win. That's what Paul is expressing in the first part of verse 25 when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, when we see that there's nothing naturally good in us, it causes us to look outside ourselves for help, but not just any kind of help. We need someone who can rescue us from this particular predicament that we cannot perfectly obey God's law, that we always fall short, that some of us may not be better than others at certain times, but we all still always end up falling short and we do it again and again and again. And we know this problem is inside of us. So who in the world can save us? Who in the world can obey this law of God so perfectly for us and then get inside us and rescue us and redeem this internal condition we face? We need help outside ourselves from someone who can live our life for us and then who can indwell us. And there's only one person who can do that. Martin Luther said all our good is outside of us and that good is Jesus. John Calvin says, since, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Jesus, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Then drink from the only fountain that satisfies. See, relying on good works, relying on virtue, relying on being nice only leads to despair because in the end, we're never good enough at that. Or if we think we're pretty good at it, it leads to self-righteousness. You know, all we compare ourselves to people we think we're doing better than, but despair and self-righteousness are dead ends because they don't deal with our real problem. And that's where Jesus comes in. And here's the news, friend. It's the good news. God in his great love became man in Christ Jesus and he lived a perfect life in our place, fulfilling God's law, achieving the righteousness that we need but we do not have. And even more, he went to the cross where he bore our just judgment. He bore God's wrath for our sin and our unrighteousness. And three days later, he rose up from the grave, defeating Satan and sin and death. And he demonstrated that he had accomplished everything he said he was going to accomplish. And so that means that all those now who can renounce, who will renounce self-reliance and self-righteousness, who will turn from their sins, their dependence on self and will embrace him by faith, he will forgive. He will cleanse. He will count you righteous. He will bring you into God's family so you belong to God forever. And it all happens by faith. You know, sometimes people wonder, what, well, what is faith about? And faith, really, if you think of it this way, is just the outstretched hand of the soul reaching outside ourselves to the help that is only found in Jesus. Jesus, our only help, our only hope. That's faith. And the Bible tells us we begin the Christian life by faith and we live the Christian life by faith every day. Every day trusting in Jesus, our Savior. Now, Paul obviously has a lot more to say about that. We've got nine chapters to go, okay? 
But he concludes here, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That's his inner being, his truest self. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And he's just summing up this tension that we've been describing, that he's been describing all through Romans 7, that the problem is inside us. It's not the law, it's our flesh. And so again, let me just say to you, this should be so encouraging to you to know that the apostle Paul, he struggled just like you do, just like I do. And it should tell us there is no room No room in the Christian life for perfectionism. There's no room in the Christian life for self-righteousness when you see the nature of your predicament. How could such people who are saved like this ever be self-righteous? How could we ever look down on someone who struggles thinking we're better than them? Because we know that our life, that our hope, our forgiveness, our righteousness It's all found in Jesus and Jesus alone outside of ourselves. We should know that and we shouldn't be surprised that this is true because our Lord Jesus said, you remember this, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's those things, not us. And he said in John 10, 10, I have come, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. So Jesus' presence in our lives is the answer to this struggle, is the answer to this struggle. You know, it's kind of funny. A lot of people who don't believe in Jesus will say religion is a crutch, right? A lot of people think it's a crutch that helps you stand up when you fall. And I just want to tell you, you know, the gospel shows us they could not be more wrong. Here's the truth. It's everything else in life that those people are leaning on. That's the crutch. The crutch that keeps them from looking to the only help and hope. The crutch that keeps them from humbling themselves, from acknowledging their innate inability, from laying hold of the only one who can save them. The only savior, the only hope. So if you are a follower of Jesus, looking at yourself the way Paul does in Romans 7 should not lead you to despair. And it should not lead you to paralysis. It should lead you to encouragement and to life. And let me real quickly give you some applications here. Here's the first one. You can write this down. What does this tell us? Well, I think we can be encouraged because I, we can know that I can know that my sinful flesh is not the real true me anymore. When I struggle... And I'm discouraged. I can know it's the, it's the old me, the dead me, not the renewed me in Christ, not the me of today and the me of the future, the me of eternity. And so when you get this, it changes everything about how you face the struggle. You see it? Say amen if you do. It changes everything. When you fall and fail and sin, instead of just feeling bad, instead of just beating yourself up for a few days, instead of just thinking nothing has ever really changed, I'm just the same person, I'll never win. Instead of feeling like you're in a battle you cannot win, no, you remind yourself that you are in Christ and you are, Christ is in you and you are in a battle you can't lose. That's what we learn. We remind ourselves that we may struggle at times, but the ultimate outcome is guaranteed. 
And I think as you continue to believe this, you will find yourself sometimes, and this is a good thing, you will find yourself sometimes after you've failed thinking and saying to yourself, why, why doesn't that sin taste as good as I thought it would, as it, good as I, it used to taste to me? Why doesn't it satisfy me or even sort of satisfy me the way it used to? And it's because you're not the same person anymore. You're different. You're someone else. And that should give you encouragement. Second, I, I can live in confidence even in my most discouraging seasons. When we were in, in London uh, on our trip a couple of, of weeks ago, one of the things we did one night was we got a kind of personalized tour of the Churchill War Rooms. And I've talked to some people here who have actually been there. And if you've been there, you know that there is this underground section of this building, uh, downtown London, really, that was a secret place where Hitler, uh, excuse me, Churchill uh, and his political uh, leaders and military leaders gathered to hide from Hitler and to be able to carry out while the bombs were falling the, 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 the um, planning and the implementation of their, their war strategy. It's this underground complex. It's now a museum. And so we got to walk through that. We got to have this kind of special dinner in this place there and hear a lecture on, 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 on what was happening there. And so these leaders lived underground and worked underground for months. And, and uh, one of the things that we know about the war happened right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was during a very dark time for England, December of 1941. The, they, they were not doing well, but after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Sunday, December 7th, when Winston Churchill heard about that attack, he walked into his office, he called FDR, and FDR told him, well, Winston, I think we're all in the same boat now. Winston Churchill later wrote in his memoir, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply proper application of overwhelming force. He said, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. See, overwhelming force transformed Churchill's attitude from hopelessness, helplessness to helpfulness and hopefulness. And nothing externally had changed in that moment. Hitler was still advancing. He was still winning. Uh, he was still on the offensive. But Churchill knew that England was going to prevail because of their al alliance with the United States. See, in the spiritual life, the Holy Spirit is the overwhelming force. He has united us to Christ, in Christ, with Christ, and his presence in us assures us of victory. And so even when you fail, even in your darkest and most discouraging days, you can know that victory is ahead. It may look like your internal Nazis are winning, but they're not. They are defeated and they will lose. Third and finally, I know God uses my ongoing struggle to grow my appreciation of grace. I think that's what we see happening with Paul at the end of Romans 7. If you read those last verses, it's kind of like he just collapses in worship. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He rejoices even in the midst of his struggle and sometimes seeming defeat. 
Uh, one of my other favorite people in church history is another man from England. Um, I've already sort of referenced him today. His name is John Newton. We know him, of course, as the author of everyone's favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. And maybe you don't know that John Newton was also a pastor, pastor of a real small church. And um, one of his main ministries through the years of pastoring was he wrote a lot of letters to other pastors to, dis- to encourage them. And one of those letters written toward the end of his life, he was 83 years old. He writes to another pastor, he says something like this. He says, I always thought that after walking with God for 40 or 50 years that I would have made more progress in the Christian life. He said, I wonder now at 83 why the temptations of the flesh are still as strong in me as they were when I was a young man. Like at 80? He's still discouraged? After all those years about how strong those temptations are, listen to what John Newton concludes. I always thought that growing in grace meant that I would get to a place where I felt like I didn't need that much grace. I've learned that what growing in grace actually means is growing in awareness of our need for grace. Write this down. Growth in grace means you grow in your awareness of your need for grace, not where you get to the place you don't think you need it anymore. And here's the thing you need to know. God will sometimes let you struggle with sin because he wants you to grow in your dependence on him and your awareness of your need for grace to put you in the same place that Paul found himself at the end of this chapter, wretched man that I am, because when you say that, you look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you say, thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's my only hope, my only help. I cannot win in my flesh, only Jesus, only Jesus. C.S. Lewis later would say, reflecting on this struggle of the flesh, sometimes God leaves smaller sins intact to keep us from the biggest sin of all, and that is the sin of pride. The sin of pride. Well, there's so much more that we could say. I actually had some other stuff I was thinking about doing, but I was kind of afraid you all wouldn't listen fast as you needed to. And so I'm gonna end it here. I'm gonna end it here. God wants us to see our need for his grace. Amen. And the way we most clearly and most deeply see that is when we are most clearly and most deeply aware of what is truly inside of us in ourselves, in our flesh. That flesh, though it is sinful and still sometimes attracted to sin is not the truest part of who we are, but it is still there. And so we must still struggle. That fight must still go on, but it is a fight we're going to win. It is a fight we're going to win. We will know ultimate victory in eternity. And that is our hope. That is our hope. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, we give you thanks uh, for your love for us. We give you thanks, Father, uh, for your grace and your mercy and their truth. We, we affirm that we cannot save yourselves. We need this all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior on the outside to come and live for us and die for us and rise for us and Jesus to continue to intercede for us. And we have one in you, Jesus.
Would you forgive us for relying on ourselves? Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Help us to look to you, Jesus, as our only hope. In Christ alone, our hope is found. We love you, Lord. We need you. And we ask you to strengthen us for this battle that continues. To remind us that one day the battle will be over and one day we will know ultimate victory. But right now we can trust you in the battle. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus, all-powerful, all-saving name. And all God's people said.